Welcome to this special episode of Doctors and Litigation, The L Word, the podcast where you'll hear the truth about the practical and psychological preparation for litigation through the voices of doctors, psychologists, and attorneys with firsthand experience. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and today we are doing something a little different because the times demand it. I know I said the next episode would be the last in the first series, and that was going to be called Life After Litigation, but we're going to put a pin in that just for a little bit. And today, instead, we are going to talk about concerns about malpractice litigation in this new era of COVID-19. Now, ordinarily in this podcast, we focus on what happens after a lawsuit is filed, but I've gotten a lot of questions from listeners looking for some reassurance, and I'm going to try to give it to you as best I can. Now, today is April 5th, 2020, and I say that because things seem like they are changing on a daily, if not hourly basis. And I have to remind you, as always, that I myself am not an attorney, and I cannot give you individual legal advice. I'm turning to a couple of trusted medical malpractice defense attorneys instead, and I've pulled some risk management experts as well to get us all some general advice as we move forward. It turns out that defense attorneys and insurers are also scrambling to figure out what you and they should know about how to best protect you. And yes, some plaintiff's attorneys are looking at how they can profit off of this disaster. You may have seen their advertisements circulating on social media already looking for COVID-19 cases. And I, like you, am infuriated that I'm risking my life on the front lines with worries about protective equipment and bringing this virus home to my family. And I'm worried about whether we can adequately take care of our patients who need us and how many there will be. And when you see an advertisement like that, well, I, I have no words. I cannot imagine being that kind of human being. Malpractice litigation should be the very last thing that we have to worry about in these conditions. Now that being said, do we have to worry? Are there simple things that we can do to save ourselves some aggravation later? What do these protections for healthcare providers that are popping up in New York and other areas, what do they mean? And how protected are you really? And what should you know if you are asked to practice outside your skill set? If you are, say, a gastroenterologist who's been asked to staff the medical floors? Or if you're coming out of retirement to help, what should you know about your liability and coverage in these really, truly unprecedented times? If we are rationing ventilators or doing telemedicine when we really otherwise would want a physical exam... If there are delays in diagnosis due to this emergency as many offices are temporarily shut down. If semi-urgent surgeries are put off with adverse consequences, are we exposed to liability? And again, this might be and should be the last thing you want to worry about, but we have some simple advice and maybe even some reassurance for you. Now, I put out a question to a large group of physicians on social media about their concerns regarding malpractice litigation and COVID-19, and I got a lot of really great questions. Many of these are variations on a few themes. We want to know about 
litigation risk in adverse events that occur due to external constraints in these times, and our risk in adverse events when physicians are asked to practice outside their usual scope or in a manner in which they would not ordinarily practice. So to speak to these concerns, I'm getting the advice of two very experienced malpractice defense attorneys. Now, remember, this is a changing landscape for them too. So take this advice as general. And if you have a specific question for yourself, you always want to talk to your own insurer or attorney and look at the laws in your own state because they definitely vary and they are changing, as we'll talk about. So let me introduce my experts. We again have attorney Douglas Williams, whom you remember from our last podcast about preparation for going to trial. I'm a partner in the firm of Brazil, Saxe, and Wilson in Baton Rouge. I have been practicing for almost 37 years, and I have been doing medical malpractice defense for 27, 28 years. Our other expert today is attorney Joshua Carlin from my home state of Rhode Island. My name is Josh Carlin. I'm a partner at Hanson Curran Law Firm in Providence, and I specialize in medical malpractice defense. I've been doing that for about 20 years. So let's start by discussing a disturbing scenario, which is actually becoming more common right now. Now, in the emergency department, this type of encounter would happen once in a while with influenza in any given season, and you could almost always count on litigation to follow in these cases. But with COVID-19, this is becoming more of a regular event. So we see a young adult patient in the emergency department during the pandemic, and we suspect COVID-19. We may or may not have access to a test, or if we did, it might not come back for days. And even then, we are generally discharging patients who are not horribly hypoxic or otherwise severely ill. But then that patient worsens. They come back the next day or in a few days, and they are intubated, and they die. This heartbreaking scenario is playing out all over the world right now, and I'm not going to get into the emotional distress this causes for the physician. We have talked about the emotional impact of adverse events on physicians in previous podcasts, and certainly we are all going to have to pick up some pieces when we are done with this pandemic. But do we also have to worry about a lawsuit when all of this is over? Would the physician be held liable in this situation? Here's Counselor Carlin. The short answer is there is no short answer. We can't, as lawyers or anybody, say the physician is or isn't liable. We have to look at what the law dictates and what the law says, at least here in Rhode Island and in Massachusetts and probably in the other 48 states, there's something very similar to this. The standard that the physician is held to is that the physician act as the reasonable physician would act in the same or similar circumstances. So let me clarify a couple of things. Do not be fooled by the language. Whether you can be sued is a different question than will you be held liable. Liability or legal responsibility, duty or obligation for an adverse event, that's decided on by a jury after you defend a lawsuit. And if you have questions about how all this works, I recommend that you start at the beginning of this series and work your way through. But what physicians everywhere are hoping right now is that somehow they will be immune from anyone even filing a lawsuit against them, but that is not the case. Lawsuits may be filed, 
and your case will have to be defended. But the good news is that cases filed for care rendered during this COVID-19 pandemic will be a much steeper hill for the plaintiff's attorney to climb than in normal circumstances. Whether or not the standard you're being held to is gross negligence, and we're going to talk about that in one second. But plaintiff attorneys will be very choosy in picking their cases if they choose to take on COVID-19 cases at all, because they're going to be very hard to win. And that's because it's going to be hard to prove that a physician did not meet the standard of care when the standard of care changes according to context. What becomes reasonable and what the same or similar circumstances are obviously changes now that we're in this emergency. But again, it's going to be for experts to explain that to a jury and to explain what the doctor did in discharging the patient without getting testing and without reaching a diagnosis or without admitting the patient into the hospital was reasonable in those circumstances. I'll reiterate here something that I've said in previous podcasts. Standard of care is not the grade A-plus care we all aspire to give every single day, as much as plaintiff's attorneys want to convince juries of that. Standard of care is not an A-plus, it's a C. And it's a C when operating under similar circumstances. The circumstances we're all practicing in right now are completely messed up. So, there may be opportunistic plaintiff's attorneys out there who will take a case, and there may be a physician expert out there who decides to support that case, and for more on that, I also recommend you listen to the podcast on the ethics of expert witness testimony, because we go into that extensively. But there could be a case brought against you that will move forward thanks to that physician expert, and now you will have to defend it. And that, in and of itself, is stressful, as we talk about throughout this series. But that definition of standard of care will be fairly protective to you if it gets in front of a jury, because every doctor right now is working under extraordinary circumstances, and everybody is learning about this virus in real time. So even if there were no additional protections put in place, you should feel at least a little reassured about that. But let's talk about some states that are taking action to protect healthcare providers even more given the current public health emergency. Here's Councillor Williams. Every state, the federal government have what they call plenary power or significant power to protect the public health and welfare. And I would venture to say that every state has a general state of emergency statute that may or may not provide some protection. What most of the states have at this point is some version of what's called the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act. The Model States Emergency Health Powers Act, or MSEHPA, is a federal public health act that gives recommendations to states in revising their public health laws to control epidemics or respond to bioterrorism. Forty states have adopted some version of this since 2001, when it was originally proposed. Most of those that have been adopted, you'll find that states adopt some portion of it. I think very few have adapted all of it. But the Model Act contains protection for doctors, particularly those who are working pursuant to or in conjunction with the state authorities or some subdivision of the states. So what that statute and most, I would venture to say most state statutes contain is a protection for healthcare providers against liability in the absence of what they call gross negligence 
or willful misconduct. And so what you wind up with is a situation where the standard of care that we know of and attempt to apply during normal events is pretty much out the door to the extent that standard of care is still the approach used, I think you will find that the standard of care adjusts in times of emergency. But I think the more important thing for the listeners to understand is the Model Act and the fact that most states have taken some version of that and given protection based on a gross negligence, willful misconduct standard. So to recap, many states have passed some form of the Model States Emergency Health Powers Act. How much it protects physicians differs from state to state, and there has to be a public health emergency declared in that state by the governor. It is very important that you ask your insurer or attorneys in your state about what provisions might apply to you in your state. Remember that in general, it means lawsuits may still be filed, but the standard the doctor has to meet now in the eyes of the jury is much, much lower, usually a standard of gross negligence or willful misconduct. So what does that mean? Perhaps something that will give your listeners some comfort is the way a lot of states have defined gross negligence or willful misconduct. Many states treat those as the same thing. Some states have a slight variance between those two terms. But for example, the Louisiana Supreme Court has stated that gross negligence is the entire absence of care and utter disregard of prudence, the complete neglect of the rights of others, or also an extreme departure from ordinary care or want of even scant care. As I said, the bar is set very low. So if you hear that kind of terminology, I think it should give some comfort that that will be an incredibly difficult standard for any plaintiff to meet against a physician who is acting during a declared health emergency. If you look at Louisiana's version, and in fact, Louisiana's version has added some language that's not in the model statute, but what Louisiana's version says is that during a state of public health emergency, any health care providers shall not be civilly liable for causing death of or injury to any person except in the event of gross negligence or willful misconduct. So it's just set the bar very, very high for a claimant to be able to prevail. And I think that's really what we've got to talk about is can somebody prevail on a claim against a health care provider, be it a doctor, a nurse, or otherwise. Since we're talking about Louisiana, I had to ask about the cases that came after Hurricane Katrina, which was definitely a public health emergency. Physicians who had to ration care and gave doses of morphine to help sedate patients who were dying under those circumstances were actually charged criminally, though a grand jury failed to indict. And there were also civil suits filed. So remember, regardless of the circumstances, suits can be filed. The difference is, what is the standard to which the doctor is being held in the eyes of the jury? You can still have suits, but again, it's an incredibly difficult standard. I am not aware of what happened with the claims against Dr. Powell. They are not reported as far as I can tell. In fact, the only case I have found that references the statute that I just read a portion of is a post-Katrina claim where a patient underwent surgery by an orthopedic surgeon about three months after the fact, and a sponge was inadvertently left in the patient and led to some fairly significant problems. 
And in most circumstances, whether it's the surgeon or more likely perhaps somebody at the hospital who's responsible for the count, leaving a sponge inside somebody is a pretty big issue. And in that particular case, the Court of Appeal in Louisiana, looking at the statute, found that there was no evidence of gross negligence or willful misconduct on the part of the surgeon and dismissed the case against him. As a practical matter, there's an argument that there was no connection between the state of emergency that was declared at that time and the medical care. And the court, well, the court actually made it very clear. The statute doesn't require that. So that's a case that had nothing to do with the public health emergency at hand, but with Louisiana's laws in that setting being a gross negligence standard for all healthcare providers, that surgeon wound up being protected. I think the public health emergency statutes tend to provide a pretty broad protection to physicians. Now, the only question becomes, do they have to be acting at the behest of the state or pursuant to a specific state order? But that's going to really depend on state-to-state adoption of the act. So I cannot emphasize this enough. Call your insurance carrier or defense attorney in your state to find out exactly what the current conditions are in your state. Immunity may not mean what you think it means. In most instances, if a gross negligence or willful misconduct standard is in place, it is still possible to be named in lawsuits that you will have to defend, but it is far less likely, as these cases will be even more difficult for plaintiff's attorneys to win given the new standard. But in states that are more plaintiff-friendly, and we know that some states are more plaintiff-friendly than others, we may still need to be on guard or at least realistic. Counselor Carlin was a little more circumspect. I think the plaintiff's lawyers, at least the sophisticated ones, are going to be thinking about the circumstances. Certainly they're going to be consulting with experts who have to ultimately be used to prove these cases. And I, I've been surprised before. I've, I tell people all the time when, they, when they're extremely comfortable with the care they provided and they say, you know, they wonder how on earth the plaintiff will get an expert to testify against them. They always do. So I, I say this with a little bit of caution, but I do think that they will be thinking twice. And I think the experts will be thinking twice about testifying against someone who's had to take care of patients in these types of circumstances. But you know that it's happened because you you pointed out the example of Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina. So I don't think either of us know the the ultimate outcome of those civil cases, but they can be brought. And um, I think the one circumstance um, off the top of my head that I can really think will be ripe for lawsuits is going to unfortunately be with emergency medicine doctors. And as difficult as the decisions are are on a daily basis about what patients to admit and what patients to send home, they're getting, I can imagine, getting all the more difficult when you put the crush of coronavirus patients in the mix. But there are going to be cases that are ultimately brought because they, the lawyers on behalf of the patients are going to say, you know, you miss this one. You, you miss this patient. And this patient may not even be a coronavirus patient. I mean, it, it's, it's not like this virus has stopped all the other presentations. Um, but it's, it's going to be you miss this one. And maybe the circumstances were more difficult. Maybe you had more patients. Maybe you had less availability in the hospital to admit patients. But my client was one of those patients that should have been admitted 
and wasn't. And as a result, grievous harm came to that to that person, whether it be death or, or something else that could have been avoided and should have been avoided had you admitted my patient, my client. So I do think those types of cases will still come like they always do. And um, I think the cases that you're probably not going to see would be just the scenarios where there's absolutely no help that you can render to a patient um, who may be already admitted to the hospital because that because the resources to give that help just aren't there. There's you, you don't have the physical equipment to help that patient. Yes, the thought of a suit being filed against you is infuriating when you are doing your best in horrific circumstances at risk to your own health and the health of your families. I agree. Do not let your worries about these cases change your behavior. They are still unlikely to be filed against any individual physician. You just practice to the best of your abilities in these horrific times. There will be fewer cases overall, but if a case is filed against you, it is still exceedingly likely that you will prevail given the circumstances. No jury is going to forget the circumstances of spring 2020, even if a trial is years away. But you do want to make sure that your insurance coverage is adequate, especially if you are now practicing medicine in a way that is not consistent with your usual practice. Bear in mind that defending a case is expensive. You will require an attorney, and their fees start accumulating from the very start. You do not want to have to do that out of your own pocket, no matter how likely it is that you will prevail in the end. So I want to address a few special circumstances, and the first is of physicians who are being recruited out of retirement to help in this pandemic. Although you are acting at the behest of the government, you still need to make sure that you are adequately protected for the reasons I just mentioned. The new Federal CARES Act may give you some protection as it suggests that volunteer medical professionals will be held only to a gross negligence standard. Good Samaritan laws may also apply for volunteers, but that's also a tricky one. It's a question that occurred to me recently as I was watching the nightly news and saw but states all over the country where either the governors, the departments of health or other people are asking physicians, nurses uh, and other healthcare providers to come out of retirement. And the short answer is, I don't know. And it's gonna be on the physicians individually to make sure that they are being protected from, and when we talk about coverage, just to be clear, we're talking about insurance coverage, just to make sure that any of the care that they are providing is being insured by somebody. And that may, that may be as simple as going to whoever they're volunteering with to make sure that there is coverage available and getting some sort of written proof of that. You want a verification of coverage. Don't be satisfied that because this is a public health emergency, because you've been asked by a state government or a county government or a department of health to do this, that you are going to be immune from liability. Councillor Williams agreed. Do not rely on the CARES Act or Good Samaritan laws to entirely protect you, whether you are volunteering or being paid. The Good Samaritan Acts are pretty limited. And particularly if the nurse or the doctor are not offering their services gratuitously, there's a real chance that the Good Samaritan laws won't apply to them. 
But in the big picture, in most professional liability claims, the most valuable thing to the healthcare provider is having the cost of defense covered by their liability insurer. And so having something in place like that is absolutely, uh, probably in many respects, more important than the underlying actual protection against liability. So it's important to have coverage and it's important to have proof of coverage in writing before you start practicing. Another consideration for retirees coming back into practice is that it's critical to make sure your license to practice medicine is also in full effect before you even set foot in a practice area. And that should be in writing also. Do not rely on the usual sets of checks and balances that make sure you're adequately licensed and insured. Everyone is going on the fly here. It's up to you to make sure you are as protected as you should be. And this really goes for everyone who is practicing in any way that makes them even a little uncomfortable these days. It goes for the OBGYN who finds themselves on the medicine floors or the family practitioner who's now working in an ICU. If you have existing coverage, it is likely that you will still be covered, but it certainly doesn't hurt to get written reassurance from your insurance carrier, even if just via email. Absolutely. If you've got a doctor or a nurse or any other healthcare provider who is providing services outside of their normal employment, where I would expect that there would be some professional liability coverage in place. I think it's appropriate for those healthcare providers to inquire when they begin to provide services or before they begin to provide services, to inquire as to whether or not they are protected under that systems, that company's uh, professional liability coverage. In the big picture, in most professional liability claims, the most valuable thing to the healthcare provider is having the cost of defense covered by their liability insurer. And so having something in place like that is absolutely, probably in many respects, more important than the underlying actual protection against liability. I know that there are some healthcare providers out there who are concerned about whether their policies will provide a defense provide coverage under these circumstances? And the answer should continue to be yes. Really from state to state, the approach is pretty much the same, what they call the eight corners test. You look at the allegations in the lawsuit, you look at the coverage provided in the policy, and if you assume that all of the allegations are correct, is that enough to trigger coverage and thereby a duty to defend? So I think the reality is those healthcare providers who have policies uh, should not be concerned about lack of coverage or lack of defense. I think the only time that could even potentially come to pass would be if plaintiffs try to get around the gross negligence or willful misconduct standard by alleging intentional act. The problem is any plaintiff's attorney who has any experience in this area knows that by doing that, they're actually pleading themselves out of coverage by claiming that there was an intent to harm the patient. So I don't think you're really going to see that happen. I think defenses will be provided to the healthcare providers. So to recap a couple things, get written assurance from your insurance carrier that you will be covered for cases that might come up from whatever new ways you find yourself practicing in telemedicine, 
working in new areas of the hospital, etc. If you're going to a different state to lend a hand or you're a retiree coming back to practice, make sure in writing that your license is adequate for that state and that you have insurance coverage for practicing in whatever your new role is, regardless of the CARES Act or Good Samaritan laws and regardless of whether a gross negligence standard applies. One other thing that both attorneys emphasized is that you should document what your circumstances are while you are providing care. I think that the gross negligence willful misconduct standard is going to protect most people if that standard is applicable in your state. But let's assume you have to deal with a standard of care, which would be the worst case scenario for the healthcare providers. Document, document the fact that there is a shortage of respirators, that there is a shortage of equipment, and that you are doing what you can under the circumstances. Document that you have been requested to provide services, for example, in the ICU. You know, you don't need to write a narrative that I'm not qualified, I'm not trained, blah, 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 but just that you have been requested to provide those services. You know, if you've got an internal medicine person, we all know that that person's trained in internal medicine and it's the circumstances that's pulling them into the ICU. And I, I think that what is ultimately going to happen to the extent that people don't have the protection of the gross negligence standard is you're going to find the standard is of care is going to be the standard based on these exigent circumstances. In other words, what we're facing today and not what we would be facing without this crisis. Also be sure to document informed consent when appropriate. For example, telemedicine requires special consents of the patient that you should be familiarizing yourself with and documenting appropriately. And regarding telemedicine, some questions have yet to be fully answered, such as whether telemedicine alone can function legally as a mandated medical screening exam for the emergency department. You know, a lot of these things that we do on the fly, who knows whether they'll stand up later. But the times demand what they demand. Just make sure that whenever you are deviating from what would normally be your practice, that you document why. If your hospital has new protocols in place, I recommend that as policies change that you keep the emails that document those hospital protocols and refer to those protocols within your documentation when you are able to. If you are making extraordinarily difficult decisions, such as rationing ventilators or ICU-level care, document what discussions there have been with your hospital ethics committees. These discussions should already be taking place. And document whatever protocols or scoring systems you are using in your decisions. And do not forget that your risk management team at the hospital is available and on high alert now, so call them with questions as they arise. We will all be facing challenges and choices that will not have right answers. In many cases, there will not be a good choice to be found due to our circumstances. And whether your concern is a delay in diagnosis or treatment because your office has been closed down to conserve PPE for frontline workers, or your concern is whether it's dangerous to bring your patient in for their infusion or chemotherapy, or because you had to delay a colonoscopy for anemia or any of a thousand new challenging circumstances, you are not alone. This is the new standard. Even if your state does not adopt additional protections, this new standard is what you'll be judged against if it even comes to that. Just continue to do your best, take care of the patient in front of you as best you can, and try to at least briefly document your circumstances and why you made the choices you did, and then move on 
to do the important work you are doing. Thank you so much to attorneys Douglas Williams and Joshua Carlin for their expertise, especially on such short notice. Remember that it's always best to consult your own insurer, risk management group, or attorney for advice on specific questions, although they are also in uncharted territory. I'll see you on the other side of this with the last episode of this regular series called Life After Litigation. Until then, be well, and I wish you all the best as you fight the good fight. Let's just continue to focus on that.